Hello, this is Andrew Womack, and this is our third teaching in a four-teaching series entitled How to Deal with Grief. And I've already covered a lot of material in our first tape. We basically just talked about how that you have to, first of all, discern whether the thing that has caused you grief is a legitimate thing or not, or whether you are grieving, obsessing over something trivial may seem like that doesn't need to be said, but I really believe that a lot of what people call grief is not worthy of grief. And uh, so I think that needed to be said. Then we talked about 1 Corinthians 10.13, that you have to realize that there is nothing unique uh, that Satan has come up with. If you think that you are experiencing something that no one else has ever experienced, it will exempt you from the answer. Also, there is comfort to be had in recognizing that other people have suffered the same thing and that they have lived through it and that they are prospering, it gives you hope. And so there needs to be an identity and recognition that other people have suffered the same thing. And we talked about that. We talked about how that the Holy Spirit is there to comfort you and about how the different ways that you can be comforted through the Holy Spirit. In our second teaching, I talked about how that uh, everything that Satan can fight you with is actually temporary. And that understanding that and putting things into the perspective of eternity is, I believe, a critical step in being able to deal with uh, a number of things. But certainly grief is included. We talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, where Paul was able to say that he only had a light affliction, not because he didn't have problems, but because he had learned how to be content. He had learned how to take those things and put them into the light of eternity. He says it's just for a moment, and he wasn't looking at physical, natural things, but he was looking at the bigger picture, the eternal values and things of God. So we've already dealt with a lot of material on this teaching. I want to deal with what I consider to actually be probably one of the most critical things in dealing with grief in your life. And I'm going to be countering what 90-something percent of all Christian ministers are. It certainly seems that way from my perspective. Uh, But the vast majority of Christian ministers, when you deal with grief, will come out and in some way, form, or fashion they will say that God is the one who has caused this grief in your life, that God is sovereign, that God controls everything, and so they will defer to an all-knowing God and say that there must be some positive reason that this grief has happened, and they just minister comfort to people by saying God knows best. God works in mysterious ways. And I will say this, that temporarily... That can bring you some comfort. It can bring you uh, some encouragement just to think that God has some purpose, something that you can't see, something beyond your ability to see. And that can help in the short term. But to me, it's like putting a Band-Aid on an amputated arm. It's not a long-term answer. And in the long term, I believe that it is going to do tremendous damage. And just like a Band-Aid on an amputated limb, it's going to eventually cause you to die spiritually. I'm going to deal with some of these things in more detail. 
But God is not the source of the tragedy in your life. God did not do it. And even though you might feel some relief by thinking, well, this isn't just a senseless act. It, it doesn't have, it, you know, it's uh, not something that doesn't have any meaning. God, a supernatural being, has a plan and design. That might comfort you temporarily, but eventually it's going to make you bitter towards God for inflicting all of the evil that comes into your life. The number one thing is it just isn't true. It isn't what the Word of God teaches. Let me illustrate this, and then I'm going to get into some scripture. But I actually had a situation when I was pastoring a little group of people in Seagaville, Texas. It was the very first church I ever pastored. There was a family there that had lived in Guatemala. They were Americans, but they had lived in Guatemala. And while they were there, the woman had a child, and this was a fairly petite woman, and she had a large baby on the way to the hospital. It was delivered before she got there. And because of it, there were complications. The baby was born what they called mongoloid, and so it was retarded. There were all kinds of problems with the child. And one of the things that happened was that its immune system was just um, out of whack. It wouldn't work. And the doctors said that the child would never live. Well, they started praying and believing God for the child to live. And the child did live for over four years. And when I met them, the child was about three and a half or four years old. And uh, so anyway, they were praying and believing God for the healing of this child and Uh, The doctors told him that because the baby had no immune system, that if he ever got sick, that there was nothing that they could do, uh, that he would just die. And the child wasn't supposed to be able to walk. He was doing all of these things. He actually, uh, I remember one time, lifted up a garage door, which they were just thrilled with. He was showing signs of strengthening, etc. But he did get a cold, and he was in critical situation. And so the parents asked me to come over. I drove over to their house and prayed with them. And because the doctors had already told her that since he didn't have an immune system, that there was just nothing to be done, don't even bring him. Uh, They didn't take him to a doctor. And I was sitting there praying for him. And, you know, to me, it just looked like he had a cold or something. But I was holding him in my arms. He was about four years old, but he was very small for his age because of all these problems. And while I was holding him, he died in my arms. And... uh, Man, we prayed. We did everything that we knew how to do. I believe that God could raise people from the dead, and I prayed and commanded life back into him. As a matter of fact, this family, as I told you, had lived down in Guatemala, and they spoke uh, Spanish fluently, and I didn't speak Spanish. And as I was praying over this child, I was praying in tongues. And the mother told me later, she said, did you know what you were saying? And I said, no, I was praying in tongues. And she said, you were telling him in Spanish, get up and run and jump and play. And I was commanding life back into him. She had, I was speaking Spanish. She had the interpretation of what I was saying. But anyway, we didn't see that boy raised from the dead. And the police nearly threw us in jail because we hadn't gone to a hospital until the parents finally uh, produced some Uh, doctor's reports that showed that it was impossible for them to do anything and that if anything happened, uh, they just had said that he he would not be able to live. So anyway, we got out of being thrown in jail, but it was a terrible situation. And my point in bringing this up is to say that I have been in tragic situations like that, and I have seen things like this. And you know what? At that time, 
it would have been wonderful. It would have been an escape for me. It would have been a cop-out for me if I just would have said, well, I believe it must have been God's will to take your son. It would have been easy to say that. It would have been easy to put it off on God rather than me admit that maybe my faith wasn't strong enough or maybe their faith or both of ours or something else. You know, there's a lot of things involved in healing. And instead of placing responsibility upon me or upon them or upon anything else, let's just put all of the responsibility on God. He's got big shoulders and he can handle it. And let's say that God is the one who killed your child. Now, I know that that's harsh terminology, but when I was 11, uh, well, 12 years old, right after I turned 12, my father died. And I remember the pastor of our church. He's the one that came in and broke the news to me because my mother was still at the hospital. And he came in and he says, God needed your father in heaven more than you needed him. And he sat down and tried to comfort me and my brother and my sister, and basically he told us that, you know, nothing happens but what God allows it. God did this. And, you know, I don't understand how, as a 12-year-old child, I submitted to that. I've seen a lot of people that if you were to tell them that God killed their father, they would instantly be angry at God. They'd instantly have a bad attitude towards God. I didn't do that. I accepted what they had to say. I guess I was conditioned. I don't even understand. But you know what? I It confused me. I couldn't understand why God would take my father from me. And uh, it caused some problems. And praise God, I was able to work through it. Praise the Lord. He has shown me the truth and I didn't turn bitter. But I believe that things like that have turned untold numbers of people against the Lord. As a matter of fact, I'm going to refrain from using the names of people because these are things that I've heard secondhand. And so, you know, you aren't I'm not totally sure of the accuracy of the statement. Plus, I may not remember some things and I certainly don't want to cause these problems. But from my understanding, my recollection, one of the richest men in the United States and a very influential man who is very antagonistic towards God has been interviewed, and I heard the interview that he he said the reason he is anti-God and he is so against God is because he had a sister that had some problem, and I don't know if she died or just was debilitated through it, but he turned against God because the religious leaders told him that God did this to his sister, and he said he didn't want to serve a God like that. I can think of another person who's an actor and very influential, And they turned against God and have become very ungodly because of losing someone at a young age. And I don't know anybody that has compiled statistics. I don't know any way to qualify this, quantify it. But I really believe that there are thousands, possibly millions of people who have been turned against God. They know that he exists, but they don't want to serve him because he has been credited with every hurricane, every disaster that comes along, every death, every tragedy. And I believe that that is absolutely wrong. That is not what the Word teaches. So back to my story. I understand why people do it. Because when you have tried to help someone stand and believe God for a healing for a marriage to be saved, for a person to live and not die, for a business to work, and you've encouraged them, and when it doesn't work, 
it is a cop-out. It is an easy thing just to say, well, God did it. But that's not what the Word says. And, you know, because of my commitment to the Word, I had to tell this family that lost that four-year-old boy. I said, I don't know where the problem is, but God didn't kill your son. This is not God's will. So one of the immediate questions was, so is the devil stronger than God? And I said, no, that's certainly not so. But God uses people. God flows through people. And it just may be that my faith wasn't strong. Maybe it was your faith. Maybe there was fear. Maybe there was something. I said, I'm not trying to attribute blame. I'm not trying to put responsibility and add to the grief that you're suffering. But I am saying this, that I don't know where the problem was, but it wasn't God. And so anyway, the long and the short of this story is that these people, because I told them the truth, I didn't understand exactly how it happened, but I knew that it wasn't God. These people prayed. The Lord showed them some things where they really believed. They came to me and they said that they had heard from God in areas where they had just been operating in fear. They knew this was coming. It had been spoken for so long And when they saw him even get the first twinges of sickness, anyway, they just accepted responsibility. They said that, you know, they weren't condemned. They didn't believe that it was their sin or anything like this, but they just weren't as strong as they should be. And because of it, they said that it will not happen again. And this woman, as I told you, this birth had caused these deformities and problems because she was a small woman. And anyway, the doctors had told her never to have children again. And if she did, that it could cost her life and certainly the death of the children. And under no circumstances should she ever have children again. Well, anyway, because I told them the truth, Satan may have stole from one, stolen from them one time, but, you know, they got hold of the truth. They believed God. They got rid of the fear and the problems. And then they had, I think it's either three or four more children. They had them all natural childbirth at home because they knew that no doctor would ever accept them after seeing their records. And uh, not too many years ago, they sent me a picture of their three or four children who had all graduated from high school, were all in college, were all healthy, and everything was just fine. The truth set these people free. Sometimes the truth is harder to handle than a lie rather than a fairy tale that just makes you feel good for the moment. But the truth is that God is not the one who is bringing evil into our lives. Let me share some scriptures with you on this that I believe could really make a difference. First of all, let me just begin to say that God has given us the authority to run our lives to a very large degree. Now, ultimately, a person is going to be held accountable for what they do and for their choices. And we are going to have to answer to God. And God is going to separate the sheep from the goats, according to Matthew chapter 25, the people who have resisted God and rebelled at God and resisted all of his conviction will be sent to an eternity separate from God. Those who accepted Jesus will be welcomed in as being good and faithful servants. And so God is going to have the last say. God is in control, ultimate control. But along the way, God has given us freedom 
to choose. God does not control our lives. You cannot say that when a person dies that they could not die without God's permission, without God either willing it or allowing it. That is just not what the Word of God teaches. Let me share some scriptures with you out of Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. Moses was the one speaking, but he was speaking for God. And he says, Behold, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your seed may live. God said, I give you the choice, life or death. You know, there shouldn't be much of a choice here. Who would choose death? Well, people do it every day. People choose death over life because of Satan's contamination, because he's perverted, and many things have happened. I think one of the reasons that people choose death over life is because God has been misrepresented. He's been told that he's the one that kills people, that God does all of these kind of things. You know, uh, again, I say that I'm making this um, teaching not long after the terrorist attacks on the United States against the World Trade Center in New York City and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And there were some very well-known spiritual leaders who came out and said that this was God's judgment and that God was judging America. And you know what? There was a violent backlash. I don't guess it'll hurt me to mention the name since they went public and became very vocal. They wanted the attention and stuff. But Jerry Falwell came out and said that this was God's judgment on America for homosexuals and for uh, all of those kind of things. And you know what? There was a lot of people that got mad, so much so that Jerry Falwell actually recanted and apologized and took those things back. You know what? In a time of tragedy like that, there's always somebody that's going to jump on it and say, this is God that did this. But no, God did not do that. That's not to say that America isn't worthy of judgment. I believe that America has sinned against God greatly. But we are living in an age of grace right now. And God is not bringing judgment on us individually or collectively at nations. Uh, Man, I haven't got time to go into this in detail. I do have a tape set entitled The Authority of the Believer that will explain this in a lot more detail. There's six tapes in that set, and I encourage you to get that. If the things I'm saying here aren't understood, and if you are balking at this and rejecting it, Because of the way that you've been taught, I encourage you to at least get those tapes and listen to it. And it will explain this in more detail. But in the Old Testament, God did judge people. And there was wrath and there was punishment of God. But it was never a blessing. It was never a positive thing as the church represents it many times. The church will teach that God is actually putting problems in your life because it's a blessing instead of a curse. It's actually God trying to bless you. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 28 makes it very clear what a blessing and what a curse is. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, it lists what the Bible calls blessings. And blessings are financial prosperity, health, deliverance from your enemies, prosperity in every area of your life, and just good things. And then in verses 15 through 68, Deuteronomy chapter 28 lists what the Lord called a curse. 
And it lists there sickness and disease, all sickness and all disease, even things that aren't written in that chapter. And then the mildew and blasting, which is damaging winds, which would include hurricanes and tornadoes and um, the botch and the all of these kind of things and uh, strife from people and being oppressed by your enemies and not being able to stand and on and on it goes. It's just like if you took a blackboard and you wrote at the top left-hand side blessings and then at the top right-hand side curses. You could list all of the things in verses 1 through 14 of Deuteronomy 28, and those are blessings. And then verses 15 through 68, those are curses. So it makes it very clear that bad things, sickness, poverty, oppression, depression, all of these kind of things are bad things, that they're curses. Now, there were times that God did that to people, but never to be a blessing to them. He did it as judgment, punishment upon sin. And in the New Testament, Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's what it says in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. You cannot get any more literal of a fulfillment of that than Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 68. So Jesus redeemed us from that wrath. Yes, in the Old Testament, God smote people with sickness and disease and did some things. But our punishment has been placed on Jesus. And in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing man's sins unto them. God is not the one who is judging us today. There is coming a future fulfillment when God will judge the world. But from the time of Christ up until the second return of Christ, there is a period called the church age or a period of grace where God is not imputing man's sins unto them and he is not the one that is judging us and doing these things. Even in the Old Testament, when God vented his wrath on people, it was not indiscriminate. It was very similar to what the United States is doing in result or in uh, retaliation for the terrorist attacks. They aren't just going after all Islamic people. They aren't just going after all Arabic people. They are going after the people who actually perpetrated these things. Now, that's, you know, in the in the example of the United States and Britain and other allies going against these terrorists, you know, there may be some things where some innocent people get hurt, but their goal is not to fight the innocent people. Their goal is to attack and to eradicate terrorism. And it's only after they were provoked. And in a very real sense, it is not just vengeance, but rather it is a stab for peace because terrorists are threatening the peace of the entire world. If we allow people, bullies like this, to get along and to intimidate well, then nobody will ever be safe. It would destroy freedom as we know it. And so it is not just revenge. It's not just retaliation. It's actually a peace-loving mission. And there may be some people who disagree with that, but I think that the majority of people will see the wisdom in this, that sometimes you have to stand up to a bully. And regardless of the consequences, regardless if you get hurt or whatever, sometimes there are things worse than getting beat up. Sometimes you just have to stand up and do what you've got to do. And in a very real sense, when God brought judgment like this, it was in retaliation, and it was not without compassion. 
like when the Lord struck the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Of course, you can read about that in the book of Exodus. But if you read over in Genesis chapter 15, when God gave a promise to Abraham that his children would dwell in a strange land for 400 years, and after that, God would bring them out. And the Lord said that he would judge that nation with these signs and wonders. But the reason he said that it would be 400 years is because their iniquity was not yet full. In other words, they had already crossed the line. The Lord was prophesying the destruction of the Canaanites, Hittites, etc., all of these ites who had rebelled at him, and they were living in terrible, terrible perversion. So God had already executed judgment, but he gave them a 400-year period of grace and extended things because their iniquity wasn't yet full. The point that I'm making is, even though there was terrible wrath on the Egyptians, even to the point of killing the firstborn, it wasn't. In the, in the heat of emotion, it was well thought out, and there was a period of grace for 400 years before God vented that wrath. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah that was destroyed by fire and brimstone, you can see the grace of God even there, that if there would have been 50 righteous people, God would have spared the entire city. But it turned out that there was only one righteous person there, and yet God brought him out. That wasn't even a part of the bargain that God made with Abraham. And yet, he destroyed the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, men, women, and children. And some people think that's harsh and terrible. But in a very real sense, if you really stop and think about how corrupt Sodom and Gomorrah is, and I've read some things, historical and um, archaeological type of things, and it was so perverse. I won't even try and mention those things here over a tape. It was just terrible, the sexual perversion. And you can see it in the Bible. I believe it's Genesis chapter 19. You can see how perverse it was that when these two angels came, the whole city came out and wanted to commit homosexual acts with them. And I mean, this was just a pattern. These people were totally given over to idolatry. It was terrible. So even though it was a terrible judgment that God brought on them, I believe that it's uh, if you look at the human race as a whole, that Sodom and Gomorrah was so corrupt, so sensual, so decadent, that it was like a cancer that God had to cut out of the human race. And if he hadn't have done it, it was certainly punishment and harsh and severe on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But if he hadn't have done it, then there wouldn't have been a virgin left for the Lord Jesus to come through. The plan of God could have been compromised. And so even when you see the wrath of God, you can see it only upon his enemies. You can see it after he was long-suffering towards people. You can see mercy even in the midst of that judgment. So my point here is that, yes, there was wrath in the Old Testament, but not because God was an angry, mean God. The true nature of God, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, is, is love. God is love. But, but he uh, is also just, and he's also aware that sometimes you do have to cat, cut a cancer out of the human race. And in the Old Testament, we saw things like that. We saw Sennacherib come against Hezekiah, the king of Israel. And Sennacherib and his general just mocked God and said, Who is your God? None of the gods of these other nations have been able to protect their people from 
us. We are going to destroy you. Your God's nothing. He mocked God. He he uh, made fun of God in front of all of the Israelis. Well, that night, an angel went out and killed 185,000 soldiers. But you know what? That was provoked. Those people were standing in direct rebellion and opposition. They were enemies. They weren't part of the covenant. So my point in saying all of this is that religion today, specifically fundamental or evangelical uh, religion, has basically taught that God controls everything, and they've attributed even the bad to God. They try and say that every time something bad happens, it is either a judgment of God or it has some corrective purpose. It is a redemptive act of God. Even when he kills people, if he gives you AIDS, if you have cancer, if you're divorced, if anything, God is controlling all of these things. And that is not what the Word of God says. A very clear way of seeing this is Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. And that verse says that God is not slack concerning his promises, as some man counts slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, this verse just makes it very clear. God is not willing for any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. That makes it very clear. It is not God's will for any person to go to hell. And yet, Jesus said more people would enter by the broad gate unto destruction rather than by the narrow gate unto everlasting life. Jesus said that not all men are going to be saved. Not even the majority of men are going to be saved. And yet, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that it is not God's will for anybody to perish. Now, if you believe the word of God, how can you say that God's will always comes to pass? Because it is not God's will for people to perish, and yet people are perishing. Why? Because God gave us a choice. God does not control us like pawns. Everything that happens in your life does not come from God. It is not God that originates bad things. And here's a radical statement. It is not God that allows all of these bad things. And I know that some people just immediately freak out when you say things like that, saying, so what are you saying, that God isn't in control? See, most people, most religious, fundamental, evangelical-type Christianity, they will, in, in an effort to deal with the tragedies that happen in life, they won't always say that God caused it, but they'll say that God has to allow it. Nothing can happen but what God allows it. And yet you can't find that in Scripture. God is sovereign in the sense that he is number one. He is paramount. He's supreme. Nobody's above him. But he doesn't exercise his control and authority over us to the point that we have no choice. I've already used that scripture, Deuteronomy 30, 19. He says, you choose. I said before you, life and death, you choose. He gave the choice to you. He won't make it for you, and Satan cannot make it happen. We choose. God gave us choice. We are free moral agents. And for us to say that the terrorist attacks on America were God is wrong. Matter of fact, God, I believe, was dealing with those uh, terrorists who were making these suicide bombings. You know, there have been some people arrested. Uh, one of the stories that I heard was that there were two Arabs who were arrested in, I think it was in Texas, Fort Worth, somewhere around there. 
on a train. And the reason that they were arrested, they were arguing. They were fighting among themselves. It drew the attention of the authorities. And when they tried to subdue them and uh, uh, they took them into custody, they found in their possession the exact same thing, such as box cutters and other things that linked them to these other terrorists. And it's been theorized that they were actually trying to hijack another plane, but they were in disagreement, possibly because maybe one was wanting to back out, the other one was wanting to go on. See, I believe that God is a good God, and God was doing what he could to stop these terrorist attacks. There's also been an email that circulated after these terrorist attacks, and there was one woman who said that one of her co-workers, who was antagonistic towards God, said, where was your God when these terrorist attacks happened? And the woman got to thinking about it, and she put out this email and just listed some of the things that God had done. For instance, there were four planes that were involved in this. Maybe there were more that were planned, but four actually were hijacked, and they tried to destroy things. Of course, one of those planes crashed in a cornfield, and it killed the passengers, but it didn't reach its target. I believe that God was involved there. God was there working through those passengers and people literally laid down their life to save the lives of other people. You know what? God is the one that does that. No greater love has any man than this and he laid down his life for his friends. There was the potential of over a thousand people on these four planes. They each held 250 to 300 people. And yet there was only a total, I believe, of 281 or 89 people that were on these planes. You know, I fly a lot, and I just don't see planes empty like that. Certainly not before these terrorist attacks. That would is unusual, and as a matter of fact, the airlines will actually cancel flights if they don't have full flights. I've had that happen often. So this was very unusual. And you know what? I believe God was at work restraining people from getting on those airlines. In the World Trade Center, they normally hold about 50,000 people in those twin towers. And then there's 10,000 people in a shopping mall below. And then there's people that are there doing business. It wouldn't have been unusual to have 70,000 people in those towers. And yet at the time that the plane struck, there was only about 20,000 people in there. Plus, the towers didn't collapse immediately but they were able to evacuate all but maybe 6,000 of those people. Now, I mean, God was moving to protect people. But you know what? God doesn't control our life. Matter of fact, there was uh, one woman that I heard that she was evacuated from the building, and then when it looked like that the towers were going to stand, her boss told everyone to go back into their office, gave them an order, but yet this woman just said in her heart she knew she shouldn't, and she took off. And she lived through it. Her boss and her co-laborers died. Did you know I believe that God intervened, got them out of the building, but bad choices on their part put them back in harm's way. And God didn't kill them because they were bad. That wasn't God. God got them out of there. And yet uh, they went back in. It was a choice of theirs. There's a lot of things. We will never know the fullness of this. But the point I'm making is God didn't do that. God didn't cause people to lose their lives and do these suicide bombings and motivate them by promising them a special place in heaven with a harem of women. God didn't lie to those Arabs and get them into deception about that. If God was going to judge America for the homosexual acts 
and for other sins. Why didn't he hit Hollywood? Why didn't he hit San Francisco? And on and on you could go. Brothers and sisters, this is wrong thinking that God controls everything and that everything that happens has to have God's approval. Again, I say some people uh, in the National uh, Day of Prayer and in the National Cathedral, Billy Graham even brought up this question and he says, we don't know why God allowed this. And then he went on. And I'm not against Billy Graham. I, I love Billy Graham. I think he's a brother and he's done an awesome work for God. But you know what? It it was without even preaching a message, it was implied that God has to either do things or allow it. It's like not everything may originate from his desk, but certainly you God has to stamp approved on everything. And that just isn't the way that the scripture teaches it. That's not what it says. Let me share some more scriptures with you out of James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, beginning with verse 13, it says, Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted. When he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is a good God, is what this is saying. Every good gift comes from God. Don't be deceived about this. Another scripture to go along with that is John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, The thief comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus came to give good things. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If it's good, it's God. If it's bad, it's the devil. Very simple theology. In the ninth chapter of the book of Luke, Jesus' disciples wanted to call fire down out of heaven, as Elijah did in the Old Testament. And Jesus rebuked them and said, You don't understand what I'm all about. You don't understand what my ministry is. He says, I didn't come to destroy man's life, but to save them. In John chapter 3, when Jesus talked about being born again, he says the Son of Man did not come to condemn, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He that believes is not condemned. And The Lord didn't come to bring condemnation. We are living in an age of the grace and the goodness of God. Now, if I say this immediately, This brings up some questions to people. And they say, well, wait a minute. So you're saying that God isn't the one that's doing these things. He's not punishing us. He's not hitting us with wrath. That all of this evil that's going on in the world is not orchestrated by God. And some people, that causes fear in them. So you're saying that there isn't some divine restraint there is, I can't take any comfort in the fact that everything that happens to me had to be approved by God. Yes, that's what I'm saying. That No, God doesn't approve everything that happens in your life. There are bad things that happen to good people. And one of the reasons in Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 is because the Lord says, My people perish for a lack of knowledge. And believing a lie and believing an extreme, out of balance teaching about God being sovereign and being in control of everything is causing people to perish. It's causing people to submit 
to all of the things that Satan wants to do in their life, and that is not good. Let me just bring up some other things here. Uh, The word sovereign, you hear this a lot. The word sovereign is not used in the King James Bible. The NIV Bible literally uses it thousands of times. They substitute the word sovereign for what the King James calls Lord God Almighty. Uh, I think it's a translation of the word Jehovah. I may be a little inaccurate on this. I hadn't studied into the original. But anyway, the NIV has popularized the term sovereign. And among fundamentalist, evangelical Christianity, the sovereignty of God is like a paramount doctrine. And I can guarantee you there's going to be some people who will brand me a heretic for criticizing this, even bringing up the possibility that it may not be taught correctly. But let me give you a definition of what the dictionary defines sovereign as. When it's used as an adjective, which is the way we're talking about when you say the sovereign Lord, it means, number one, paramount or supreme. Well, I agree that God is paramount and supreme. Nobody is above him. God is the top of the chain, the chain of command. Nobody is above him. In verse, uh, The second meaning is having supreme rank or authority. I agree with that. God is absolute, the head of everything. God is supreme. Number three meaning is independent, such as a sovereign state. You know, the United States is sovereign. That means that at one time we were a colony of Great Britain, but we broke away and we became a sovereign nation. That means that we are self-determining. Now, sometimes you will hear people use the word sovereign applied to the Lord and say, He's sovereign. You never can tell what God's going to do. And what they're implying is that there is no rhyme or reason. God can do anything he wants to do whenever he wants to. And they interpret sovereign as meaning unpredictable. There is no meaning here. There is not one single definition of the word sovereign that implies unpredictable or random. Actually, it is inconceivable that a God who created such order in this universe is himself totally disorganized and that you cannot tell what he's going to do. No, that's not what this means. When the United States became a sovereign nation, that means that it it got out from under the control of Great Britain, but that doesn't mean that there are no controls. We are self-determining. We have set rules, laws for ourselves. And the United States is not a lawless country that can just do anything and anything goes. No, there you can guarantee what the United States is going to do. We've got a constitution that binds us. Well, God is sovereign. He's independent. He's highest in authority and rank. He's supreme. He's paramount. But he has laid down laws of how he will operate. And God will not violate his word. He won't change. He said that he cannot lie. God is never going to change. So that type of interpretation of sovereign to say that God can just do anything, you don't know what God's going to do, that is not a scriptural interpretation. The fourth definition of the word sovereign means excellent. And I believe that God is excellent. So I agree with all four of those definitions. There is no complaint. But you know, that is not what the religious world today is teaching that the word sovereign means. If you look at the root of this word sovereign, it literally comes from a Latin word, which is super, S-U-P-E-R. That's the Latin word, and it means above. I believe that God is super above anybody else. But the way that religion 
has used this term sovereign is to say that God controls everything. He orchestrates everything. It either has to be his direct will or his permissive will. And that is not what the word of God teaches. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the express image of the Father. A perfect representation of God is what that's saying. An exact copy, if you go into the Greek, is what it's talking about. He's the express image of the Father. What did Jesus do? Did we ever see Jesus put sickness and disease on a person? Did we ever see Jesus kill people? Did we ever see people, uh, you know, God through Jesus just blast people and do all of these things? The only people that the Lord ever even rebuked were religious leaders and the money changers in the temple. He never blessed any of God's people with sickness, with disease, with problems. Instead, he did just the opposite. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says that Jesus went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Not oppressed of God, but they were oppressed of the devil. God is not the source of all of the evil and the problems in this world. And if you are dealing with grief, I think one of the things that will set you free is to recognize that God didn't cause this thing. This is not God's judgment and punishment against you. Now, it's possible that there's someone listening to this who the reason you are experiencing grief is because of your own sins. But it's not God judging you for those sins. You are being judged of your own. Say, for instance, if a person is getting hold of this tape and you're in prison and you're dealing with grief because, man, you're going to be there for a long, long time and you're fighting depression and you may say it's not fair. But you know what? God didn't do that to you. You did that to yourself. You violated God's leading. I can guarantee you that God tried to draw you out of the lifestyle that you were in and cause you not to do the things that you did. And you choose to, chose to do your own thing and you are reaping what you've sown. And it's not God that did this to you. You are reaping what you've sown. You've messed up your life. There are people that may have a stroke and may do other things. And maybe it came because you didn't take care of your own health. Maybe you were unhealthy and 100 pounds overweight or you were stressed out or whatever. I can guarantee you God tried to keep you from going that direction, but you didn't uh, appropriate his peace. You didn't take care of your body and you are reaping the results of that. And that's not God that did it to you. So am I saying that since God doesn't judge us and since God is not the one bringing evil, that there's no consequences to sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. You can either reap your own consequences in your health, in your emotions, from the government, and also there's a spiritual world out there, and it says in 1 Peter chapter 5 that Satan is going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And if you live in sin, Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. We've got an enemy out there that's going about looking to destroy people's lives. John 10.10 10 says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if you live in sin, it's not God that's going to get you, and it's not God that's going to judge you, but Satan. If you open up the door to him, he will come in and eat your lunch and pop the bag. So yes, there are consequences to our sins. 
And yes, you can sometimes make a direct relationship between sin and the problems, the tragedy that people find themselves in. But it's not God judging them. There's coming a time that God is going to judge us based on whether we accepted or rejected Jesus. But during this period of time, he's operating in grace, and God is not the one who is punishing people and causing the tragedy in your life. Man, I think this is vital that you get this. If you don't understand this, if you attribute whatever it is that has caused grief in your life to God, then ultimately that's going to cause you to have a bad relationship with God. It's a slander against God. It's against his nature and character. The Bible reveals to us that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. But religion and most people's understanding of God reveals to them that God is angry and that God is upset and that God is the one that's causing them pain and suffering. But that's not true. God is the best thing that's ever happened to any of us. He is for us and not against us. And instead of slandering God by saying that God caused your problems, that is wrong. God didn't do it. God is a good God. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go good in your life because God doesn't control everything in the sense that he sends all of the bad, but God doesn't also automatically send good. You have to choose. You have to learn to cooperate with God. You're the one that actually has the choice of whether good or evil comes into your life. Now, Satan will certainly try and influence that choice and force things on you. But as you get grounded in the Lord and get strong in the Lord, you can resist Satan and keep his will and his plans for your life from coming to pass. If for some reason you're listening to this tape and you have not been seeking God and you realize that the tragic situation in your life was not God, but it was Satan that came against you and maybe the reason he prevailed is because you haven't been seeking God and you weren't able to draw on God's power, well, then this would be a great time for you to make a decision that I'm never going to let this happen again. You know, I've had to deal with that in my life. I've had people very, very close to me die that I actually believe if I would have been walking in faith with the Lord and operating in, in healing and stuff, I could have seen those people healed. I've seen people healed of those exact same things since then. But you know what? I didn't condemn myself. I didn't get mad because, you know, I, I can't I can't be upset over what I didn't know. But when I came into those situations, I began to seek God. And now I've learned things. And now I am seeing victories, whereas I used to see defeat. I'm seeing people raised up from the dead and blind eyes open and deaf ears open, whereas before I couldn't see those things happen. It's God's power. But you know what? I had to make some choices and believe some things to start seeing those things come to pass. Another thing that happens is if you think that God is the one who has put tragedy into your life and has caused, given you the occasion for grief, then you know what that does? That renders you passive towards that problem. Now, I hope you understand this. Look at a passage of Scripture in James chapter 4. In verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This scripture says we have to submit to God and resist the devil. Now, if some people's theology that teaches nothing could happen but what God allowed it, if, if that was true, then this verse would be meaningless. What is there to resist if God actually controls everything? I actually heard a man teach a 
sermon one time, and he called it Satan is God's messenger boy. And what he said is Satan can't do anything but what God allows him to do. So even if it's Satan who has attacked you with something, God had to allow it, and it came for a redemptive purpose. Now, that's not true. That is a lie. That's a deception. And if you believe that God controls everything, then it makes you passive. How could you fight against a sickness or a disease if you think God really allowed it? You know, actually, if you were to follow that logic through, and if God really did put cancer in your life to teach you something, then you're hypocritical to go to the doctor and take chemotherapy or surgery to cut it out when God gave it to you for a purpose. Why don't you just learn that purpose? Why are you fighting it? If you really believe that God is the source of all sickness, then you ought to throw all of your medication away. You don't want to get out of God's will. You ought to learn the full measure of that. Of course, hopefully, you are saying, now that's ridiculous. Certainly, you're supposed to try and get over this. You aren't supposed to submit to sickness and let things dominate you. I agree 100%. But if a person really believes God put the sickness on you, if you really believe that God caused the divorce, if you really believe that God caused your children to rebel, if you really believe that God's the one that caused your business to fail, if you believe that God is the source of all of your problems, then you'd be wrong to resist it. But, of course, that's not wrong. God does want us to resist the evil and to fight back. It's one of the great keys of the Word of God that when you resist the devil, he will flee from you. But, see, if you think that God controls everything that happens in your life, then that makes you passive. Because, after all, if God's got a hand in it, then if you fight against it, you would be resisting God. So the people, the evangelicals, the fundamentalists, who really believe that God controls everything, they are passive. It's one of these case sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. And the only thing that they do is just try and appropriate the grace, the peace, to be able to endure all of the problems. But you won't find them actively fighting against anything. And that's what the word resist means. The word resist, according to the dictionary, means to actively fight against. You can't be passive. You know, I've ministered to, I don't know, even thousands of people with cancer. And one of the consistent things, qualities, characteristics that I've seen in people who beat cancer is a attitude that they are willing to fight. They get angry. They get violent. Cancer is, a, of course, a terminal disease, and it's tenacious, but it really is weak. It just takes some fighting, and you can't fight it just for a minute. You've got to fight it over a period of time. But if you fight cancer, if you get angry and resist it, that is the that is the common characteristic I've seen in the people who beat cancer is just a will to fight. When a person gives up that will to fight, then they go downhill quickly, and the end comes. And so, see, I believe that this resisting evil things in our life is one of the paramount things that we have to operate in. It's one of the things that is a defense against the devil. But through this deception of thinking that God controls everything that happens, nothing can happen but what God allows it, that takes away the ability to resist, to actively fight against, because you think that God is the author of it. I tell you, I believe that this wrong teaching 
that on the sovereignty of God. Or I believe that God is sovereign if you use this definition that I gave. But the sovereignty of God as taught by the majority of the church world to where God controls everything or allows everything and that even sickness and disease and poverty and things are good. When Deuteronomy 28 says they are bad, it was on the curse side instead of the blessing side. It says that Jesus went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, not oppressed of God. And yet much of the church today is saying that sickness is actually from God, that people are oppressed of God instead of the devil. And that kind of thinking, in my estimation, is the worst doctrine in the body of Christ. It slanders God. It will ultimately ruin relationships with God. You know, praise God that the Lord was able to reach me at a young age. But if I would have continued on thinking that God killed my father when I was 12 years old, how does how how can you expect a child that had somebody kill their father then become best friends with the person that killed their father? You know, in the natural realm, you'd never do something like that. Matter of fact, you'd even counsel people and tell them that it's to your advantage to stay as far away from that person as you can get. And that's exactly what a lot of people are doing today. I tell you, it ministers peace to me to know that God's a good God and that God doesn't control the bad things. I mentioned that I'd heard a report that my son was dead and on the way into Colorado Springs to find him. Of course, he was raised from the dead, which was a great, great miracle and blessing. But on the way into the springs, before we knew what the outcome would be, my wife and I just started praising God and saying, God, thank you that you are not the taker of life. You are the giver of life. Thank you that you haven't done this. We praise you, and regardless of what happens, I know that you are a good God. Only good and perfect gifts come from above, that you came to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. It's the devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I'm telling you firsthand that I experienced tremendous peace. Matter of fact, I believe that my faith was quickened and my wife's faith was quickened. And that's why we saw our son raised from the dead, because we knew that God was not the author of those evil things. Man, that's powerful. I know that there's other scriptures that people have used sometimes to counter this, and I just haven't got time to go into it. I've got a tape entitled The Sovereignty of God that would deal with this. I've also mentioned that six-tape album I have entitled The Authority of the Believer. I've got a tape on Job entitled Job. I've got a tape entitled um, God is a Good God. I've got many tapes that deal with all of this, and if you need more uh, specifics, if you want to get questions answered, you can listen to those. Let me just give one last illustration of this. At one time, I was preaching at a church in Colorado Springs. A man brought his daughter, who was a paraplegic. She was mentally retarded. She was not in contact. She was breathing, but she had zero control of herself from her neck down. She couldn't talk. She couldn't function. Her mind wasn't working. They had to have her in diapers. They were changing her diapers. She was 12 years old, and she was in a wheelchair, and I made some statement that God is not the source of our problems, that God doesn't do things to us, that God's a good God. And this man got angry and left. And the person who brought him to our service uh, said, 
why don't you wait until after the service and ask him what he meant? Maybe you misunderstood. Maybe he can explain himself. So the man who had this daughter in this wheelchair stayed around till after the service. I went up to talk to him, and he was really mad. And he started sharing with me scriptures that God did this. It was God's will that his daughter be in that situation. You know, I understand why people embrace that doctrine because, again, it just allows you to cope. It's it's convenient to think, well, this is God's will. That way you don't have to ask why and you don't have to take any responsibility and you don't have to think that, you know, is there something that I could do? Is this the devil? Is there something that I could do to overcome this? It just allows you to absolve yourself of all responsibility. And I can understand why that's attractive to people, but I don't believe that that's true according to the Word of God. So anyway, this man started sharing his scriptures with me. I shared my scriptures saying that God's a good God, and we were getting nowhere. It was all based on interpretation. Finally, I just knew I had nothing to lose with this guy. He was already mad. And so I just looked at him, and I said, what kind of father are you anyway? I said, what kind of dad wouldn't even care if his daughter was a paraplegic and in a wheelchair, and you don't care if she's ever normal and plays like other kids? And boy, when I got to, you know, uh, criticizing him and saying that he didn't care if his daughter was healed, this guy got so mad, he nearly hit me. And he started saying, I'd do anything. He says, I would pay any amount of money. I would do anything. I would literally take her place. I would get in that wheelchair and I would be like her if she could be like me. And when he got to that point, then I said, and you think God loves your daughter less than you do. Now, see, this man could argue doctrine with me. He could take a scripture out of context and misuse it. And he could say, I'm taking my scriptures out of context and misusing them. And we might have never come to an agreement based on just some interpretation of these things. But you know what? When it comes down to God is love. And you say, would you treat a person the way that you're saying God has treated you? If you went out and struck people with AIDS and with cancer and heart attacks and car wrecks and destroyed lives and did things like this, there is not a civilized nation on the face of the earth that wouldn't put you in jail. And there is nobody in their right mind who would want to be close to you if that's the way that you were. And yet religion is saying that that's the way that God is. And then they wonder why people don't want to get close to God, why people are running from God, why they don't want to come to church. No, God is not the author of these problems. And if you would just sit down and think about it, 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Is that the way that love would function? Somebody says, well, it's not love either to let a person die if he's got. Well, I've established the fact here that God gave us the choice. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell, but he will defend your right to go there. And you know what? We are making wrong choices. And my people perish for a lack of knowledge is what Hosea 4, 6 says. And through this tape, through this teaching, God is trying to speak the truth to you. But you know what? You have a choice whether you receive. And when it comes to dealing with grief, I believe that you, first of all, need to recognize that God is not the one who's caused your situation that's causing you grief. And it will cause you to run to God instead of run from God. You might get a temporary sense of satisfaction in thinking that there was some redemptive purpose. But in the long term, I can tell you, dealing with people, you will become bitter, angry, 
and it's not good. The truth will set you free. John chapter 8 and verse 32. And the truth is, God is not the one who's put these problems in your life. God is a good God. Only good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights. And if you would begin to start praising him and thanking him and saying, Father, I know you are not my problem. You haven't done this to me. Faith would rise on the inside. The Holy Spirit would begin to start agreeing with truth. And you would find out that God would meet your need and supply you and encourage you. Again, there's so much more. I've opened up a subject that could be discussed for days on end, and I encourage you to take advantage of these tapes. But this is a truth that has ministered to me, and I offer it to you, not for the purpose of trying to condemn or confuse, but to set the record straight. God is not the author of our problems. Praise God. Jesus came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. Thank you, Father, for Jesus and for him redeeming us from the curse of the law. And I minister to these things to my brothers and sisters. Ask the Holy Spirit to take it, to encourage them, and to enlighten them in the name of Jesus. Amen.